This message by Chad Porter, entitled "The Peril of False Belief," was recorded at Wellspring Church on August 18, 2019. The text for this message is Jude verses 3 to 16. All right,、I、believe、uh, many of us are getting back. Before the reading of God's word, I I do have a an important announcement to make, and this is truly comes as a Bittersweet news, but on Tuesday, I was informed that Chad had taken a another position at another church, and I wanted to let you know that Chad and I, and so Chad's going to come up, give a little bit of the story, and then I'll come up after and talk about it. Well, on the list of things you did not expect to hear in the last thirty seconds, that was probably a. High on them.、Um, very briefly, a very long story condensed.、Um, it truly is, in so many ways, a very bittersweet、uh, announcement to make. Over the last probably nine months or so,、um, or about nine months ago, we,、uh, both Crystal and I, we. Just there was a stirring inside of us that we didn't really know what it was. Beyond, this is something that I think we need to pray about.、Um, and so it's not any one、uh, reason, but a lot of different things that have kind of contributed.、It、was a much more contemplative, contemplative period of life. We were entering our tenth year of marriage.、Uh, Olivia, our oldest, is getting ready to start school. A lot of things happened. That、uh, just kind of coalesced to drive us into this period of really evaluation of our lives, our family, our ministry. What is the Lord calling us to? What is He calling us to as a family, as a couple?、Um, so that entered into a long time of prayer, both individually and together.、Um, also seeking counsel、uh, from a lot of those outside of us, inside ministry and out. Um, where the odd thing arose, it was certainly odd to the question presenting itself of if God were ever to call you to another ministry somewhere else, what in the world would that even look like? Like how how would that actually happen? I think my Latent thought was that the heavens would open and a dove would descend and pass me a note, or something like that.、Uh, you know, equally touched by an angel. Ask. I don't know if anybody ever watched that show, but <laughs>、um, but through this period of first these these inward kind of questions and evaluations to talking with those around us, it really began to be clear. It would be something much like this, in the sense of God beginning to show us through our prayer and through the counsel of other godly men and women what He might have for us. And so we went down this path of a lot of evaluation, fully expecting uh, and uh, invested in serving our body here at Wellspring. Uh, concurrently with this, at one point, God, as He would have it, put an opportunity in front of us、um, of a pastoral position in 
Austin, Texas, of all places, a place where we have odd connections in the sense of we have actually an odd amount of connections there from friends in the past and just different relationships. And so that began this time of really cautiously and skeptically on my part, I'll admit, uh, engaging with this church just through discussions and not to belabor the point much longer, it culminated uh, with through a hundred different ways that I can see and many more that I can't fully express coming to a confidence that we do believe that God is calling us to serve this church in Texas. And so they have extended a call and I have accepted and uh, it is cannot communicate quite accurately the complex of emotions that uh, are present and that have been present and certainly will continue to be present as we prepare to say goodbye to Wellspring and to transition to this other opportunity, uh, which is both exciting to see what the Lord is doing in our lives, in the lives of the church that He's called us to, in the lives of our brothers and sisters here at Wellspring. And it is certainly terrifying uh, as well in this great unknown. And so I, my last Sunday here, as the Lord would have, it will be September 8th. It is three Sundays from today. And so, as God would have it, I am preaching almost all of the last weeks that I am here, <laughs> for better or worse, unless I say something heretical that causes the elders to kick me out. Uh, that was a joke. I'm not planning on doing that. Um, it's at this point and during these times that we are reminded afresh and anew in God's sovereignty over His people and His sovereignty over His church. And even though none of us, pastors, elders, congregation members, may know what's going on in their own lives at any given moment, He certainly does. And so um, there will be much more to say and much more opportunity to say it over the next few weeks, I'm thankful that I will get to be preaching and I will have monopolized your ears uh, for uh, Sundays coming up. Or I will have a monopoly over your ears for a few minutes. Um, and so there will be more opportunity to talk, but I did. we did want to say that right now. And so I believe I'm handing it back to Sam. Right so as I uh, shared, it is bittersweet. Um, when Chad told me on Tuesday, I first and foremost went directly to just some of the characteristics of God. It happened in a moment's flash. And really, the first and most important of all is God's sovereignty. He is uh, the Lord of all. He has everything in the palm of his hands. Nothing happens by chance. I believe that with all my heart. I've seen it experienced in my own life personally, as well as even in the very rudiments of this church in its earliest of stages with many failures and flaws. But God has reminded me time and time again, this is his church, not mine, not yours, but his. And 
one thing we do know from the book of Acts is that there are many instances where as Paul wants to go in one direction, he has a Macedonian call and immediately averts and goes to another direction. While there's sadness, there's also reminders of the fact that God is truly sovereign. He is leading. And I trust that. So we're going to be praying for many blessings for the Porter family as they go on September. Uh, their last day with us officially is the 13th, which is a Friday. Uh, the elders and I have already begun transition plans. And we will share a lot more specifically about what those plans are at the members meeting on that Sunday, September 15th. As well as just to clear, uh, clarify any, any possible misunderstandings. We did not kick Chad out. And I don't think he's running away. I think there is on both ends a mutuality of understanding of God's unique call in this circumstance. We trust that. So I hope you'll uh, take this time in, in the next few weeks of saying your goodbyes and, and trusting and praying for the Porter family as they transition, and as well for Wellspring. I'm excited what the Lord has in store for us. So please keep that in mind. Well, if that's not a seamless transition, I don't know what is. Uh, let's, let's rise. And let's read God's Word this morning and then pray together. Our Scripture reading comes from the book of Jude. We'll be reading verses 3 through 16. Hear now the Word of the Lord. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation... I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were destined for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our, ma our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. Now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual morality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing the punishment of eternal fire. And yet... In like manner, these people also, relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. But when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, The Lord rebuke you. But these people blaspheme all that they do not understand, and they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. Woe to them! For they walked in the way of Cain and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's heir and perished in Korah's rebellion. These are hidden reefs at your love feasts as they feast with you without fear, shepherds feeding themselves, waterless clouds swept along by winds, fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead, uprooted, wild waves of the sea casting up, from the, fo up the foam of their own shame, 
wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. It was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness which they have committed in such an ungodly way and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against them. These are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. They are loudmouthed boasters showing favoritism to gain advantage. So far, the reading of God's Word. You may be seated. Let's pray. Our Father, we come to You now. There are times in our lives in which we feel the desperate need of dependency upon You more than others. It is always present. We live uh, hand to mouth, breath by breath off Your grace and sovereign care, and yet sometimes we feel that reality stronger or more strongly than other times. And Lord, now we certainly do feel our need for You. Lord, You are good and Your love endures forever. And we can take heart and joy that You are working in our lives and in our church and in Your kingdom always, ever, and only for our good. And so we, above all things, are deeply thankful to You for Your love and Your care and Your provision for us. So much of which we talked about even last week in Jude's opening to this letter. Oh Lord, we are called, we are loved by You before the foundations of the world apart from anything good or bad that we did or ever could do. And Father, we are being kept by You for the return of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our place as Your sons and daughters has nothing to do with us from beginning to end. It is Your work and we exalt and praise You with one voice for that reality this morning. And so we pray that You would give us eyes and ears to hear and to see and to focus on what it is that You are teaching us through this time in our lives individually, through this time in our church corporately, through this text of Scripture that we are looking at right now. We pray that You would please be near. That You would speak to Your children, that You would be present for us in grace as You have surely promised to do. And so we pray this confidently and boldly in the name of Christ Jesus. Amen. As we turn um, our attention to these verses in Jude, now, as we turn our attention at this moment in time, at this situation and context in the life of our church, in the lives of us individually, 
as we sit here in the circumstances that God has providentially ordered for us, what are we to make of these 13, 14 verses this morning as we continue to look at this book? This book that many of us, if we're being honest, may have never read before in our lives, or we may have no idea what it says, even if we have read it, especially from this passage, which can be deceptively complicated, as I did not fully understand until I was pounding my head against a desk this week for a long time, trying to understand what it is that God is saying and why in the world it applies to us today. But hopefully we will be able to see that it surely does apply. It surely is God's Word to us this morning as Wellspring Church. It surely is God's Word to us for our good and for our sanctification. That's because the interesting thing about this text is like the Bible, it is so timeless with such a myriad ways that it is applicable to the very details of our lives. And particularly in this text this morning, we encounter the very real truth that our salvation in Christ, our true and vibrant saving from the wrath that is on our heads or that we deserve, it necessarily transforms in every way possible both our thinking and our doing. The work of Christ for us as His people on our behalf necessarily transforms both our thinking and our doing. And we see this through Jude talking to the church that has been infiltrated with false teachers here today. And to help us think through the remainder of this text together, we're going to do all of this under three main headings. And that is the state of the problem, the severity of the problem, and the solution to the problem. The state, the severity, and the solution to the problem. And so let's begin with our first point, the state of things. What is going on here in the church? What is Jude actually doing? What's the situation? You, you might remember from school, if you are in school right now, I trust that you have heard this before. If you are in junior high or high school or college, if you have been through school, maybe you blocked it out uh, due to bad memories, I don't know. But uh, do you remember your English teacher talking about writing papers? And what's the one thing that they tell you about the introduction to any paper? It needs to have a thesis statement. A very clear, very concise thesis statement that tells you what is it that you're going to talk about here. I, it's a clear memory in my mind being told from teacher after teacher after teacher after teacher as I'm trying to like artfully transform, like make my essay sound good and stuff like that. And like, it makes no sense if you don't tell me what you're going to talk about right up front. Even if it's wooden and it's not artful and it's not beautiful. You need a thesis statement to say where it is that you're going. And Jude is a good teacher in this respect because he dives right in after his introduction and tells us clearly and plainly why it is that he's writing this letter. Look at verse 3. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write to you appealing to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed, 
who long ago were destined for this condemnation. Ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. What's the situation here in the church that Jude is writing? We know very little about the church. It's not addressed to a particular place, uh, to a particular city, to a particular house church. Uh, There's not particular names mentioned on where it's going to. So we know very little about the particular context. Not yet, in some ways, we know a lot. We know that he wanted to write about the common salvation that they share as brothers and sisters in Christ Jesus, as so many other apostles did in the New Testament in letters from Paul to Peter and the like. And yet, he couldn't. He had to stop because this very gigantic situation is wrong that has come to his ears, and that is false teachers have infiltrated the church. False teachers, of whom we will learn a lot about as we think over the next few minutes together about what Jude says to them so passionately, or says about them so passionately, but false teachers that threaten the very foundations of the Gospel, that threaten the very foundations of what the church is all about. And so Jude stops about writing. He ceases his his desire to write to them about our common salvation, and he, he shifts, and he says, I found it necessary to encourage you to contend for the faith. And that word, contending for the faith, and it's really... It's almost like an athletic imagery. It's kind of this intense struggle or effort that, that athletes fight towards for the prize, right? As Paul talks about elsewhere, I encourage you to run the race with endurance, to fight on, to receive the prize of the upward calling in Christ Jesus our Lord. Or as Paul says to Timothy, by the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. Or elsewhere, fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of eternal life to which you were called about, which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. So this need that the church has here is to contend for the faith. And this isn't like merely we're not talking about learning a good uh, evangelistic strategy to go to talk to those who are unchurched and jaded. That, that's not primarily what Jude has in mind here. He's writing to the church to contend for the faith within the church, within the body of believers, because the church is in danger. The church is in danger because it's full of sinners and we are blind to our own sin. Notice that these false teachers come in stealthily, unknowingly, silently. It is not something that usually is on billboards for everybody to see. We'll talk about that more later. But the state of the problem is the people of this community, of this church, need to contend for the gospel faith that has been once for all delivered to them by the apostles and the prophets because wolves are in the camp and they don't even realize it. Wolves are in the camp and they don't even realize it. And that's the state of the problem that Jude encounters this morning. Let's move to our second point, the severity. We'll be here a bit longer than we were on the first point, but hopefully it won't be uh, uh, too belaboring. There's Jude does not mince language in this book. If there's something that I want you to notice, it's how passionately he talks here. Don't let the brevity of this book blind us 
to the significance of what he's talking about. He is deeply passionate about things. And he's talking about not only the state of the issue, but then he goes in, okay, in light of this being this issue, therefore, let me tell you about it and explain more fully why this is a gigantic deal. And he does that by highlighting two things. The first is the severity of punishment that is at stake. Or you might say like the severity of the stakes that we're talking about. And so to do that, to kind of highlight the situation is where you're at. I don't know, I don't know if you've ever encountered, uh, this issue when, uh, if you have kids or if you have maybe someone younger that you're mentoring, maybe from youth group or just a younger friend or somebody that kind of looks up to you of where you see them doing something and they don't see it as a big deal. Like it, they, it's, they just totally don't see it as a big deal, but it's monumentally important. And they like can't understand why. And you, and you're like, you're freaking out on the inside being like, what are you doing? I mean, an easy example of this is for parents. You, this happens to you with your children so often, right? I mean, your kid walking into the street or walking towards it. Like I have these memories of myself as a young kid and I thought I was being so careful and stuff. And then all of a sudden my parents are running, screaming like crazy people to grab me because I was, I thought I looked into the street and I was going to ride right in. But then there was a car barreling down and they happened to look up and see. And like these random things that you see the, the other day, I was taking our girls for a walk and, um, I, uh, I looked up and, uh, as it happens, Olivia was never very, she's, she's much more intellectual. We don't have to worry about her running everywhere. And Noelle is completely the opposite. Like I get why parents have leashes sometimes at Disneyland on their kids. Like she'll just, she loves life. She will run and dive in. The other day I was taking her for a walk and you know, you look at all of a sudden she's just darting for the street. And so I'm dropping everything and running to go, or we take her to the beach and you put her down on the sand and all of a sudden a million miles an hour, she's running straight into the water, you know, and you're trying to make sure your other kid's fine. But, um, Jude kind of has this, this flavor about him here. He's, he's like, this is a big deal of what's going on. There's this issue in your church, unless you think that it's something small it's hugely important because look at the severity of punishment, the stakes that we're dealing with here in the situation that's going on in your body of believers, in the body of Christ there, wherever it is. And to, to do this, to kind of highlight these the stakes, he points to three examples that point to the gravity of the situation that we're dealing with here. And the first is in verse 5. Now, I want to remind you that although you once fully knew that Jesus, who saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. This references the Exodus, drawing the people out of the land of Egypt. And what happened? God brings his people out of the land. Pharaoh refused to let them go. He finally relents. They go. God leads them intentionally to a place where they're they're uh, hemmed in. There's like the Red Sea in front of them. And they've got their women, their children, and all the herds, everything together. They're not prepared for battle or anything. And then 
the Egyptian army has second thoughts and they're like, why did I let them go? Go get them. And so they've got this strong army who can annihilate them coming from one side. They've got this big body of water that would surely destroy them on the other side. And you know the story. God parts the sea and they walk through on dry land. But Jude's point here is what happened to those who did not believe afterwards. Well, God drew them into the Red Sea and then caused the waters to clash over them, to crash and destroyed an entire army in one fell swoop. Pride of unbelief leads to destruction as the first example. The second in verse 6, we will move through these more quickly. And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he is kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. We're not specified what exact episode is being referred to here. There are ideas and theories that people debate about, whether this is the initial falling of the angels and following after Satan. Satanic forces that referred to as demonic or demons, these fallen angels, or whether this is another other instances that we see about Jude doesn't give specifics, but that's okay because he does give make clear what his point is. These angels did not count it necessary to stay within their own position of authority, their own state or place in their existence in which God has set them, but they chose to seek and grasp after that which was not theirs. They chose to reject God as Satan did as Adam and Eve did, as you and I have done and do, we say no to God and we take a position in a station that is not ours. And what Jude says is what happened to those angels? Well, God has kept them in the chains of gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Thirdly, Sodom and Gomorrah, just as they, they and the surrounding cities in verse 7, which likewise indulged in sexual morality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing the punishment of fire. Sodom and Gomorrah, you remember the story from, ex, or from uh, the book of Genesis. The wicked outcry of the city has reached God's ears and He sends His angels down to see what is going on and to bring His judgment should it be True that things are as terrible as they are. Of course, God knows already that it is as terrible as they are, as uh, it seems. And the angels go down and they go to Lot, Abram's nephew, and they because they're going to save him, the one righteous man, and pull him out of the city before bringing down this judgment upon. And what happens to them? They go. And then they are approached. These two angels of the Lord are approached by all the men of the city to violate them, to take them sexually. And they actually have, they strike them with blindness, come out, and then God executes judgment. Jude points out here, not only is unbelief bring condemnation and judgment or pride of place, bring condemnation and judgment, but sexual immorality brings pride of pl- or, uh, brings condemnation and judgment. So these are weighty things that we're talking about here. Hugely weighty things. Then before 
Before we move on from here, a word or a couple words need to be said about this issue in verse 7, especially in light of our current context and day and where we are at, we are at as a people. What is referenced here is homosexuality. There has been debates or some that argue that what's being condemned here is not homosexuality in particular, but um, mainly forcible violations. That doesn't, it's not persuasive. These men did not appear to be angels in this else, or they appeared to be angels. It was not that these men just wanted, were after angels, especially because it makes clear that they pursued unnatural desire. It's not that they were just pursuing angels. It's not even just violations that are in play here or forcible. That is not okay because elsewhere in the New Testament, the Bible is clear on God's nature of the union between people. God's nature of intimacy between men and women. And I say that, and this is freighted with so, so, so much, right? And so there's two things that we need to pause and consider. There's two words that some of us need to hear. And the first is to those of us who have no problem with what the Bible says about homosexuality, and we have no issue whatsoever, but maybe we functionally feel like members of the LGBTQ community or people who would be attracted to those of an opposite sex, like, of the opposite sex, like that they are somehow more weird than, uh, they're somehow farther from God. Or this is like somehow a unique sin that we don't know how to deal with, or we, or it's just love of oh, you know, it is it is shocking, or it is dirty. Like it, there are some of us that react that way. We have no problem with what the Bible says about homosexuality, but we do have a problem probably with what the Bible says about loving those who are outside of Christ about the continuity that we have with every single person outside of Christ, no matter what type of brokenness they have in their own life, no matter what time of type of sinful proclivity they have. And so if that's you here this morning, if you, if you fail to think of how can I, and we actively love and winsomely and persuasively engage members of the LGBTQ community, then I would encourage you to stop and consider how the Bible calls us to encounter these things, how the Bible calls us to reach out to those around us. Specifically, I mean, we're in the San Francisco Bay Area. Like, what place in the world is it more of an issue? Is this culturally and societally more of an issue? And so I would encourage us to think and pray and seek intentionally. How can we be a people who lovingly welcome and reach out to every single type of person that there is in our midst? That's one word that we need to hear. The second 
word that some of us may need to hear is that we must take the word of God at face value. We must take the clear word of God at face value. Recognizing that it will always press on points that are incredibly difficult for us personally, that are incredibly difficult for us relationally, that are incredibly difficult for us societally. I do not want to minimize those pressures and those difficulties. But we must take the clear word of God at face value for what it says not as if God has created an arbitrary list of do's and don'ts and created like some test for us all and said, this is right and this is wrong and I'm going to see if you do that. And I'm going to give you good things if you do good. I'm going to give bad things if you do bad. We cannot live as if that is the case. That's not how we should take the Bible when I say we need to take it at face value. But rather, we must take the Bible at face value as presenting the word of the one who has created us, who has quite literally made us who we are and designed us in a certain way. Ways in which are distorted within all of us in so different, in, in many different aspects, but ways in which he has designed us to flourish as human beings. We must take the Word of God at face value as no matter where it presses on us, no matter where it chafes us, no matter where it makes us angry or makes us not understand things, but we take it at face value, trusting and pleading that God would help us to understand why this is good. Why this is, this is not a bad thing ultimately. It is a difficult thing. It is a profoundly difficult thing for so many of us, even perhaps probably in this room. But it is a good thing. It was a longer aside than I planned on giving, but uh, it is what it is. The severity of the punishment, the severity of the stakes Jude lays out here clearly to wake the congregation up to what's going on. And secondly, it's not just the severity of the situation. It's also the severity of the particular disobedience. It's not just the severity of the punishment that's coming, but it's the severity of the disobedience of the false teachers. And here Jude piles on in language that's really amazing. Go back today and read this like two times and just think about the, the, the passion in his language. Think about the unambiguous nature of what he's saying. Think about the picture that he paints to those, about the conduct of those who are in this community. Just a few examples. Verse 8, these people, because they rely on their dreams, that is, because they endow their dreams with divine revelatory substance, as opposed to God's Word, this faith that has once for all been delivered to them, but they are investing their own dreams with the significance of, of the Word of the Lord, 
They defile the flesh. They reject authority. They blaspheme or slander the glorious ones. Verse 12, they are hidden reefs in the church's love feast or at their fellowship meals. They are shepherds who feed only themselves. They are waterless clouds, which are worthless. They are fruitless trees. They are wild waves that froth up their own shameful deeds. There are waves in which like the foam of the waves at the beach that you see come up. That's what these, these people are like. But the froth that's coming up is just their own shameful deeds. They're wandering stars. In verse 16, they are grumblers, malcontents. They follow their own sinful desires. They are loudmouth boasters. They show favoritism to others. Can you think of descriptors, negative descriptors that he could have added that he didn't? The list is probably short. But he does this to bring to light not only is there a big deal in terms of the stakes that we are dealing with for punishment for sin are huge, but look at the disobedience that has infiltrated your church and you don't even realize it. Like the stuff that he's mentioning is huge that you would think, oh my goodness, how could you not see this stuff? But that's the way of sin, isn't it? Like the way of sin is usually not walking in the front door of your life or our church with a billboard and a marching band announcing it. The way of sin is subtle and slow, built upon a million compromises. Such that John MacArthur once said, a man when he falls into sin usually does not fall very far. He was speaking of adultery in that sense, but you get the picture. There's a thousand slow, methodical on the part of the enemy compromises that happen over time to where it's like a frog in boiling water, right? You don't even realize that they're in it. Put them in cold water and then you turn up the heat, you don't even realize what's happening. The severe punishment that awaits, the severe disobedience which is exhibited in Jude's passion that he exhibits here. And he's passionate not for bad reasons. He's passionate about the truth because he's passionate about Jesus. He's passionate about the truth because he's passionate about Jesus. He's passionate about people rejecting Christ. Rejecting him is no small matter. We talked about that last week about how Jude in his introductory, that he's a servant of Christ, makes Jesus equal to Yahweh. He does it again here. Did you notice it? In the first example that Jude uses when he's talking about the Exodus in Egypt down in verse... uh, uh, five, he says, Jesus, who saved the people out of the land of Egypt? Who saved the people out of the land of Egypt? Yahweh saved the people out of the land of Egypt. Yahweh brought the people, the one true God, out of the land with his strong arm and his outstretched hand. He brought them out. And here Jude says, Jesus brought them out. He exalts Christ again. Jude does not see disobedience to Jesus as a minor deal, which is why he just dives right into this letter with this harsh language, this wake up type of scream. He's passionate about truth because he's passionate about Jesus Christ. He's passionate about truth because the truth and Christ must go together. Truth and Jesus must go together. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father by me. You cannot have one without the other. And that's why Jude is so 
deeply concerned that this church would contend, strive after, follow hard after the faith, the gospel that has been entrusted to them. It's an odd thing to think of ourselves as being entrusted with the gospel. Is it not? Not just the, not just the pastors and the elders, although certainly the pastors and the elders have been entrusted with the gospel of Christ Jesus, but we as a congregation have been entrusted with the gospel. It is to be guarded as precious. It is to be dived into deeply as our only source of life. It is to be heralded to everyone else and it is to be protected from onslaught, from our own sinfulness and the sinfulness of others. And that's why Jude is so passionate about these things. Thirdly, Jude is passionate about the body of Christ, passionate about truth because he's passionate about the body of Christ. Did you notice that these the, the issues with the false teachers were not just their own personal problems? But look at verse 12 again. These are these people are hidden reefs at your love feasts. Love feasts are like fellowship meals. How the church celebrated communion uh, in the first century was largely it would eat a meal together. And at the beginning of the meal, it would be kind of bookended by what we take as the Lord's Supper. They would take of the same bread in the beginning. They would partake of the, of the same cup of wine in the end. And it was this larger expanded fellowship meal. And these false teachers who are in the midst of this congregation are both a risk to themselves in incurring judgment personally, but they also are hidden reefs or hidden blemishes, you could say, stains, rocks, hindrances to the community. So Jude is passionate about this because the stakes are high, because he cares about Christ, because Christ and the truth must go together, and because the health of the body of Christ is at stake. It's not merely an individual issue as we can so often tend to think about things. We have a tendency to think of our relationships to God as profoundly personal and that they are, but they are not solely personal. They are corporate. We exist as believers together in the body. Belief and the body go together. Belief and action go together. We cannot separate these two. The states and the severity of the problem are seen clearly. And finally, the solution. Don't worry, we will be more brief, or I will be more brief with, uh, with our third and final point here. The problem is huge. The problem is big. But what is the actual solution? Does Jude leave us here? Are we left here to our own devices? Well, thankfully, we are not. The first and the most important thing to do to all of us in here, whether we are believers in Christ or not, it's actually the same response that we need to have in many ways to Jude's words here this morning about this congregation. And that is we need to see and we need to run. We need to see and we need to run. What do I mean by that? I've I follow sports a lot. I love uh, all different kinds of sports, uh, but I do follow them professionally. Uh, I'm a Lakers fan. I've said that before. I apologize. <laughs> Not really. Um, but it's always kind of one of my favorite hobbies to see uh, professional athletes do something like really egregious on the court 
or on the ice in hockey or in the field in football, they do something like profoundly nasty or bad, and then I like to watch their apology afterwards. Like they got a thousand cameras on them that can read the lips of what they're saying and what racial epithet they just hurled out there. Or what action or, you know, everything is seen. But then it's very interesting to see like the, uh, the apologies are always something along the lines of, I'm sorry, I'm, I let my emotions get the best of me, but that's not who I am. I'm a competitor and I let, and I let my competitive juices get the best of me. That, that's not who I am. I know I yelled, I hurled this profoundly insulting and belittling term at this person that offends millions of people out here, but that's, that's not who I am. I apologize. It's, it's always like this, like, sorry, but I don't really have to be sorry type of thing. Like, public apologies are an amazing spectacle to watch, right? Personal apologies are the same way <laughs> while we're at it, right? We're very good at kind of like saying sorry without, you know, maintaining, accepting culpability. But the solution to the problem really that we're presented with lies in seeing ourselves for who we really are. If we are not believers in Christ Jesus today, I say this not flippantly. I say this not glibly or joyfully at all. If you are not a believer in Christ Jesus this morning, what Jude offers to you and tells you this morning, what he screams out is you need to see yourself in the state that you're in. You need to see the judgment that is coming. If you are a Christian here this morning, Jude screams much the same thing to you and me. He says you need to see yourself this morning. You need to see the danger that you personally and your community are in, you need to see the connection between yourself and these false teachers. You need to see that actually at the bottom of it, I'm more unlike this person than I am, or I'm more like this person than I am unlike them. Tell me if this sounds familiar. Pride? Unbelief? Rejecting authority? Sexual deviancy and sin? Does that sound vaguely familiar? The things even we as believers in Christ Jesus continue to struggle and to battle with every day. What Jude says to us here as a community is you need to see who you are and you need to run to Christ. You need to run to Jesus. This same Jesus that Jude has spent this time exalting and lifting up and saying, this is a huge and gigantic deal what you're doing here. The same Jesus. Do you know what He says to you this morning? He says to you, come to Me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. He says, boldly approach the throne of grace so that you might find mercy and grace and help and healing in your time of need. He says, you don't have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with your weaknesses. You have one who has suffered in every way that you have yet without sin. So come. Come to me. The judgment is coming, and that's what Jude says, but the judgment is not here yet. And so believer and non-believer, 
Christ beckons us to come. Jesus beckons us to remember what Jude said in the beginning of the letter that we are called, that we are beloved in God, that we are being kept in Christ Jesus, and let that be the motivation for you to run to Christ for forgiveness for your sin. Let that be the motivation to run out to everyone else, as we'll talk about next week, to run out to save others by snatching them out of the fire, Jude talks about. Hear these words, hear these passionate cry for Jude, not as somebody banging a hammer on a pulpit telling you condemnation, condemnation, condemnation. Let it be a wake-up call to cause you and me to see ourselves for who we really are, and most of all, to see Jesus for who He really is. To see Jesus, the one who was in the ultimate high place. You think the angels were in a high place? Jesus was in a high place. And what did He do? He came and emptied Himself and took on the form of a servant. Not because He was trying to grasp something that God had said no to, but because He was trying to grasp a people that God had said yes to. And so this morning, as we close, let us consider the Savior that we have. Let us consider the weight of sin. Let us consider the risk of onslaught to our community. And let us consider our great and glorious God who always beckons us to come and who has situated this great call to waking up in the context that we heard about last week. He will keep us until the end. Let's pray. Lord, we pray for ourselves and for our hearts this morning. We are thankful for Your Word to us. We are thankful for Your Gospel. We are thankful that You have given warnings. Let these warnings not be taken as uh, from a high-handed, uninvolved, unloving judge but rather from a judge who loves us to the extent that He came and bore our sins in His body on the tree, who became sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. And so would you bless us today? Would you shelter us today? Would you be our refuge and strength? Would you cause us to see who you are, to see who we are, and to run to the saving arms of Christ Jesus. And it's in His name that we pray. Amen.